Hello there, and welcome back to The Price of Pain. For some reason, it feels like we haven't done this in forever. I know you just had an episode two weeks ago, uh, but for whatever reason, I feel compelled again to uh, just say how how excited I am to be continuing this in 2022 and so happy and grateful for your support as an audience uh, following along. Today's episode, we have Dr. Mark Bishop. He's an associate professor in the UF Department of Physical Therapy. And uh, maybe more importantly, he's the director of physical therapy research. So he has a hand in influencing the curriculum and development of all the doctors of physical therapy that this program produces. We talk a lot about his background in physical therapy as a clinician in three different countries and how that brought him to a point where he could apply what he used and what he learned and the questions that were developed over that time to his research in the time since. It's a really exciting episode. Um, I like all of our guests who exist in that intersection between pain research and the application of said research, and Dr. Bishop is certainly one of those guests. So sit back and and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. So there's this offshoot of an Australian accent, which has all of that, you know, it's intellectual sound, but with some built-in approachability. So I think if, if nothing else, you know, you could you could talk about <laughs> you could talk about you know the color of the walls in your office, and, and our listeners would still be you know pretty interested Perfect. in what you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> like, particularly my aunt, I have to tell you this also. You know, we had uh, we had Steve Coombs on on an earlier episode. Uh-huh. She's like, oh, that's fantastic, and she says, what I really love is an Australian accent. I said, you know, I have a guy for that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it has nothing to do with you know your your publication track record or your role and your contributions to science. It's just so that you know my aunt can can hear the yes, accent. It never does, mate. It never does. No, that that stuff's all immaterial when it comes down to the <laughs> end of it. Uh, but I do uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your background, though. You you started your. Uh, your uh, education in Brisbane, correct? Before coming here for grad school? Absolutely. So Australian education at that time, PT was a bachelor's degree, so went straight in from high school to the University of Queensland and ended up... So I worked a couple of hospital jobs, mainly uh, in the southern part of Queensland, um, Gold Coast Hospital, and then some private practice work in northern Queensland. And after that, left and worked in Canada. Mm. So probably 91, 1991. I uh, got to the great good fortune to work with a set of private practices there. One of the practices had the contract with the Calgary Flames. Mm. And so that was a big practice. And then the practice I worked for did junior AA hockey. I never knew that. Okay. Yeah, so I worked at uh, McMahon Stadium, physical therapy. Uh, they had the the rink right there. The guys had come up and worked with the sports physios to get their stuff taped and their recovery things. And uh, there was a third practice that had the uh, contract for the Stampeders. Okay. And Doug Flutie was playing for them at okay. the time. So, <laughs> so that was a, that was a lot of fun. That, wow. that was a good time. Now I don't I don't always get the opportunity to learn something new about our guests. Some guests I'm really familiar with, and some not. But that you know you're kind of in that middle ground. Uh, I had no idea. So <laughs> it, you know, looking at that in comparison to where you are now and what you do now, it's a little bit understandable that you that you research pain and physical therapy. If you had your your beginnings at least you know stateside or North America at least in hockey. So. Yeah. How yeah. does um, did you get the opportunity to to practice at all in the states or? Just Australia, yeah, Canada. So after I left Canada, my visa ran up, as it does, and mm-hmm. um, we were headed to South America for the South American leg of the world tour, but ended up getting work in Florida. Started for traveling healthcare. I don't know if you're familiar with those That's type right. of companies. So, like tra- the same as traveling nurses, where you absolutely would... okay, okay, absolutely. This was for physical therapists and got one of those jobs. Um, ended up 
working for a hospital here in Gainesville and then for a private practice in Gainesville, then a different private practice. Eventually met somebody, got married, decided to stay here more permanently than a traveling contract. And here we are, whatever it is, yeah, so it yeah. arrived here in 1993. Now, looking back, obviously, a little bit, but how does, how does the, the practice of physical therapy compare between Australia, Canada, and the States, uh, similarities and differences? Or is it pretty much all the same? I'd say that, so the actual interventions and things like that, very similar, using uh, all the same... All the same sort of skills. Maybe we differ a little bit on emphasis. The Canadians that with whom I worked were, um, a lot of them used a lot of exercise and manual therapies mm -hmm. were something that you did after you finished PT school. You went on and, and did additional training. And in Australia at that time, it was part of our PT school. So I guess my focus was a little bit different. I tended to, to go to manual therapy earlier as an intervention. Um, and then United States, same sort of thing, probably more similar to Canada, I would say, that at that time when I came to the United States, people would learn manual therapy and do it, but it wasn't quite as widespread in the entry-level education. Lots of people did it as a post-professional training. Mm. Um, I, you know, the, the biggest difference, of course, is the healthcare systems. <laughs> yeah, elephant in the room, right? Yeah, and so how you interact, the number of times you interact, and with whom you're interacting was quite different. Um, you know, I have not practiced in Australia or Canada, Australia since the 80s, mm -hmm. and um, very early 90s, so I'm sure things are tremendously different, but, you know. And, and one of the reasons I asked is because throughout my PhD, there were some things in the lab that, that we wanted to research and that we sought to get funding for. Um, Near-infrared photobiomodulation, for example, and, and some things like this that, that the publications to support that for evidence-based practice seem to come from either Australia or South America, but studies in North America either didn't have interest in that or weren't funded by the NIH. So I was just, you know, that I was wondering if there are other, you know, types of interventions and therapies that, you know, or therapeutic modalities that you could employ uh, there that you couldn't hear or vice versa. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are. I um, unfortunately haven't practiced if so I'm right. not really sure what the, what the changes have, have been. I know, one of the fairly large differences between practice uh, in Australia and the United States is that Australia has been direct access, meaning you can go and mm -hmm. see a physio without needing a referral. I'm, I'm maybe 1972 comes mm -hmm. to mind. So it, it's, and the U.S. has uh, forms of direct access, not unlimited direct access. For example, in Florida, you can go and see a PT without a referral. Uh, your insurance company should cover that, um, but if it's going to be longer than 30 days, then you would need to see a physician of record. Mm. So Was that one of the, uh, because you had mentioned that when, when you got your training, it was a bachelor's degree, and I know that it transferred from that into a master's degree, and now, um, and I'm not sure as, as far as the, the perspectives from the APTA, but... Um, but now it's a doctor of physical therapy. It's a doctorate. Is was that one of the the driving features to to push toward it being a doctorate level education? Is to to uh, to maybe promote the idea that that this is a level of healthcare that should be direct access, or is it the, are those two things totally unrelated? No, uh, you're on the right track. Um, there was a a vision that the APTA had um, to elevate. The profession, uh, professional reputation, professional status, as well as professional skill mm -hmm. in the United States. And one of the ways that they saw to do that was to transition through to clinical doctorate. There were other goals as well. Um, but every program in the United States now, uh, if you complete your professional training, you would graduate with a doctor of physical therapy. What are some of the, the ways that the education is, has changed to elevate that, that level of, of degree? 
uh, from at least just from the from masters to now it's a three year correct it's a three year program, um, and I I do have a little bit of knowledge of this because at one point I was considering you know PT school or PA school or PhD mm -hmm. um, and have you know throughout my doctorate had a number of students um, that were undergraduates that were preparing for for PT school. Um, so I learned a little bit about it, but I'm still somewhat naive as, as far as how that's changed um, over the past few years. Mm, so I think, um, <clears throat> excuse me, probably the most common addition to a master's curriculum that occurred is programs added coursework with more emphasis on radiology, uh, imaging, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, pharmacology, um, and uh, differential diagnosis, some of these type of courses, and, and every program, of course, changed things a little bit differently, but I'd say those extra areas of training and focus were considered important to make sure that we could uh, be considered a doctoring profession. Mm -hmm. People modified their clinical experiences and clinical training, uh, and so I'd I should know all this stuff as program director. So, I, I, you know, the programs are about somewhere between two and three years. Very commonly, I think, around two years in a semester, two years, two semesters. And, and one of the things that I think makes you unique as far as a guest on, on the podcast is, um, and we discussed a little bit of this, you know, before going on air, but, but you have a clinical background in treating people with pain. And as you mentioned, it's been a while since you've practiced. You, you've been, you've transitioned through research and are now in an administrative role also. And we can get to that later. But um, you know, physical therapy seems to be one of the, the healthcare disciplines that, that pain in diagnosis and management and treatment of pain seems to be central to what you do. It doesn't seem, and cor again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem very common that somebody goes to a physical therapist and, and says, well, I feel fine, you know, but I'm, something's not right. Uh, you know, it seems like there's always a, a pain component. So how, how has your, your, your clinical background um, influenced or informed um, your, your interest in research and and, you know, I, I know we're going back a little ways, but, but if you can think back to that, what, what were some of the things that, that throughout your, your clinical years you thought, oh, well, I really wish that I knew or somebody did fill in the blank? So I'm going to tell this story in a couple of different parts. Right. Um, is there an, we get an intermission in between? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the parts is, so when I think about physical therapy as a profession or a discipline, there's many different places that physical therapists practice. Mm -hmm. And so some physical therapists may not deal with the person who has pain. But there's lots of physical therapists who practice where people have pain. They're in a hospital, they've had surgery, they've had a stroke, they've hurt their shoulder, they've had a sports injury, they have some sort of degenerative change, a connective tissue disorder. And, and as you say, most people aren't saying, you know what, I feel pretty good. <laughs> feel pretty good. Today's the day I see my physical therapist right and as a profession the you know we've been talking a lot about pain and pain management as a profession for many years um, 2016 we really I think t this is to me just me but 2016 the APTA started to push the choose PT we're looking at the opioid crisis, saying, you know what, PTs are perfectly situated to be doing these non-pharmacological interventions. And we'd, we've had a long, long history of support in medicine, you know, the ACPA guidelines for low back pain in 1994, primary recommended spinal manipulation manual therapy. Right? Mm -hmm. PTs do that. And so we've had this long history of being recommended as a non-pharmacological intervention for pain, but perhaps not being sought, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so they um, launched that Choose PT for Pain. Um, Florida launched PT for Pain. And so I, I would say that maybe the last five years has had a lot more press and maybe pushing to advertise. And we've had some really good 
opportunities to participate um, around education related to non-pharmacological management of pain. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of, if I was going to summarize it, say why that might be something that people think more now than they did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. For my for myself, I this is Act Two. <laughs> so when I was working here in Gainesville, I had the sports jobs, mm -hmm. and I talked to the traveling healthcare company who said, "Yeah, you want a sports medicine job in the mountains, an hour from the beach? You got it." <laughs> Signed all the paperwork, waited for my visa to come through, and they said, "Oh, well." That, sports med job in the mountains near the beach is not going to happen, So, but we do have this other job. And that was the hospital position, and I did, did that. I actually love acute care. So that was a lot of fun, getting back into that environment after a couple of years. And, then and, and so that's a setting, if I may interrupt, that's a setting where you're, you're going to the patients who are inpatient yes. and treating them while they're in the hospital. Absolutely. So okay. um, people who are hospitalized for whatever health condition and, mm -hmm. and you're helping with mobility and activity and working with other disciplines like occupational therapy to think about how is Josh going to do when he gets home? What do we, what is, what do we have to do? I have to interject just one more thing that I, I vacillate between being amused and offended by how physical therapists are represented in cinema because it's always the kind of quirky, you know, Birkenstocks, hey man, how you doing, casual usually the guy has a perm, you know, and in, in, in it's always an inpatient PT uh, in those settings. And I don't know if, if I've ever seen a profession that's more misrepresented in mm -hmm. pop culture than, than that. When you say inpatient, that's, you know, a hospitalist position, that's what comes to mind is always, you know, that kind of quirky, weird guy that, that the patient's always like, no, no, go, go away. But anyway, please continue. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, and so then I got a clinical job where I had to work with people who had low back pain. Mm -hmm. And I did not know what to do for someone with low back pain. It hadn't been part of my practice. I'd had the, the sports positions or these acute care hospital positions. And now I show up and there's 15 people on my schedule who all have back pain. I say, how can this be? What do I have to do? Um, and so I guess that really kind of started it because I didn't know what to do. So I started hanging out with some people who used to go to the library and long story, took courses that eventually the university said, you have enough credits, you need to declare a major and get a, a, a mentor and start <laughs> doing this. Uh, so I don't want to misrepresent completely, but the first part of my graduate education was a little bit accidental and haphazard I wanted to know more about how tissues healed, so I took classes about pathophysiology and healing. I wanted to know how something adapted to mechanical stress, so I took classes. And so that was my path to eventually getting a graduate degree. Mm. And somewhere along the line, somebody said, hey, you know, Mark, you're, you're three credits shy of a master's degree. Why don't you just go ahead and do this? And then, because yes. you, you have both a master's and a, and yes, a PhD. That's so. exactly, that's <laughs> almost exactly what happened with the graduate school saying, well, you're going to have to find a mentor, do a project, and, and like make this a degree. You mm -hmm. can't just keep taking credit. You can't, or, or you can't come back. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I guess it, you know, in, in, in your role now, you understand how important the numbers yes. are. Of, uh, you're looking like one of those that did not you know, a non-success story Correct. just by going and learning, heaven forbid, you know, but yeah. all right. Um, so I still working clinically. I took class at mm -hmm. night and stuff like that. So I guess my last full-time job was the turn of the century. Okay. Um, and I don't, don't get to regularly practice thinking about this a little bit. I mean, I have the opportunity to practice every week. We have the pro bono clinic that uh, we started in 2009 um, so periodically I will go and work with students who are um, learning, practicing, engaging with um, patients who are there. And so that would be my clinical contact right now. How much has, how much has, has the, the practice of physical therapy changed from then till now? Are there, are there major ways that it's different or just small refinements over time? Small changes over time. The, if you were going to ask me how my practice has 
changed. A lot of it is related to documentation, mm. um, billing constraints, but the people aren't different. The sort of process isn't different. Those things aren't that different. You know, I've always wondered also how much, obviously, um, it seems to me at least that, that most programs, most clinics, most PTs uh, tout an evidence-based approach to their practice, meaning that that whatever therapy uh, they're providing, there's something in the scientific literature that supports that it works. However, all people are different. So how much how much leeway is there in in and I ask this because you're now in a role that where you have a say in in the curriculum and in the teaching within UFPT, correct? So how much how much leeway is there for adapting the you know what's known in the literature to benefit a patient is that something that happens yeah so a couple of things when you think about evidence-based practice practice-based medicine the evidence you're looking for the best available evidence mm-hmm and sometimes the best available is a rigorously controlled trial that gives you a specific answer about a homogenous population. And so then the next step is to work out, can I apply that group data to my individual patient? How do I do that? And so that would be something that a, a PT student would learn. But a lot of the times, there is not that rigorous data. So you have to make it a choice about what is the best available evidence and this is something I just, another opinion of mine that gets misrepresented a little bit is that if I don't know anything about the condition and you have seen people with this condition, mm-hmm. your experience is better evidence than me not knowing anything. Mm-hmm. And so in that situation, the best available evidence is your clinical experience. That makes yeah. perfect sense. Right, and yeah. so it, it may not be that it's strong evidence but the best evidence I have is that you've worked with someone who's had this condition before and this is what you did and this is what you found. Mm -hmm. Um, Because otherwise I don't have any evidence and I'm just kind of making things up as I go along. So, you know, I, I, I feel like several professions, I can't speak for all, but I know it's not uncommon for me to hear people say, oh, well, there's there's nothing supporting this in the literature. And an absence of evidence doesn't mean an absence of effect. Mm -hmm. But I still need to weigh these things and say, actually, they did do a couple of studies where they showed people got worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's (laughs) valuable. If I know that, then I I don't do it. Mm -hmm. And there's probably lots more studies that show an indeterminate effect, and this was about the same as something else. So then as a... As a practitioner or a provider, I have to weigh that and say, so the three stools are the best available evidence by experiences and your preferences. Mm-hmm. So Joshua, here's what, here's what we know. Here's what I think. What do you want to do? Yeah, that, that last question, that last component um, was a big selling point for me. And I try not to talk too much about myself on this podcast, but... But as you know, I, I rehabbed uh, after a, a quad tendon repair, pretty vicious quad mm-hmm. tendon rupture, and then had it repaired uh, to the extent that I could return to athletics. And so, of course, uh, you know, larger stress predicted in the future meant that he had to be a little bit more rigorous with, uh, with this type of repair, the surgeon did. And that was both with my surgeon and with my physical therapist uh, throughout rehab. And it was a long rehab. That was the question that that really drove home, and it was here at UF, so I had high confidence in, in both of them, but but that was the question that really drove home my confidence that everything was gonna be okay. Both the surgeon and my therapist asked, what do you wanna get out of this? What do you, so not just, you know, not just with the, the surgical intervention and the repair, but hey, how, how aggressive are we gonna be with this rehab? What are you looking to do? And that came into play huge because with my therapist, this is one of those cases of, you know, lack of evidence. I don't fit the demographic for a quad tendon rupture. Um, that type of injury is is more uh, prevalent in an older, excuse me, 
yeah, in an older population with comorbidities that I don't have. Um, and so it, it was unique in that respect, my injury was, but also infrequent enough that there's just not a whole lot of literature out there on the best way to rehab that. And so I was put with a therapist who was awesome um, that had, I think he had somewhere you know, four, six prior patients that were comparable to this over the last 15 years, I think he said. So, it's, you know, it was one of those things where in the absence of the literature, he had, you know, these experiences and can say, well, you're kind of like this and you want that. But, but that leeway, I, I think, was huge. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that my experience trumps strong evidence. Right. But if, but if I don't have that strong evidence, then, then you know, I need to go with, with what I have. So with low back pain, and then this is another thing that, that our listeners don't know, but when discussing my dissertation, you were the first exposure I had, direct exposure, and this is, as you pointed out, one of the, the weaknesses of, of my project, in asking, well, have you done any quantitative sensory testing? Have you, have you done any pain testing of that? My answer at the time was no, because I had no idea what it was. And... Uh, and so that, that contact and those questions were my introduction to where I am now. So thanks for that. Um, You're welcome. Well, I wasn't able to rectify uh, you know, that shortcoming of my project. You just have to talk about it in the discussion. When I eventually write it up and publish it, or at least submit it for a publication. Um, but you... Um, you're able to do something that some of the the other researchers that I've had on the podcast, uh, you're able to do something that they're not able to do, which is see some of the direct applications of a discipline, pain research, that's not very well known and not very well understood. It's a, it's a growing discipline. Um, so what are some of the ways specifically with, with physical therapy that, that, that your experience in your research and your findings, you've been able to say, look, this is exactly how we can use this. Because many of the people on the show have very interesting and, and compelling work and groundbreaking work. But I have to think that our audience says, okay, that's great. But so, you know, what are some of the ways that we can directly connect the dots here with, with some of the work that you've done? Oh, it's well, a broad question. It's a pretty broad question. <laughs> let's start, well, let's start with low back pain because that's a, that's a, a, a pretty... Uh, uh, a well, large I, burden. I'm going to start with a shameless plug. Okay, that? okay, let's How do it. That? So I've had the great good fortune to have a bunch of collaborators who share similar interests to me as manual therapists, subdiscipline of PT, chiropractic, osteopathic, mm -hmm. variety of different professions. Okay, I hate to do this, but... I have to act as a proxy for our for our audience. So when you say manual therapy, can you describe how manual therapy is? What are some of the? Oh, the... absolutely, absolutely. So manual therapy is a, a broad term that applies to me performing interventions where I use touch. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, it's uh, there's a force associated with the touch. Sometimes, it, you know, different types of manual therapy have different levels of force different targets. I tend to be someone who's very joint focused, moving the joints passively um, to try and achieve a few different goals. There's people, um, you might be familiar with massage therapy or uh, some of the um, myofascial release sort of thing that's, that's focused on a lot more of the soft tissues. So you have these broad disciplines that are using touch, to create some sort of change with the end goal of improving someone's function, quality of life. Okay. And so we were in a, we were in this phase, there was maybe five or six of us who were really interested in manual therapy clinically, mm -hmm. who now were all working at a university doing research into pain, saying, uh, we should totally use some of these things that we're using in these other studies that we're doing with our mentors and say, let's collect this stuff on the patients that we're seeing. And, you know, there was the usual, I think, 
or common, not usual, common approach. We hear some studies in healthy people. All right, this is what we saw. Here's the studies in people with pain. This is what we saw. That's pretty interesting. And so that, that work in 2005 or something like that, um, so groups in the past had shown something similar, but we would our timing was right or something because Steve George published a paper about getting hypoalgesia immediately after spinal manipulation and we did a series of studies to try and tease apart you know the the parameters and the dose and all this type of thing and then so got, spinal manipulation reduced pain or at least immediately after in, immediately in after reduced your response to standard stimuli so your receptors were less sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, and so we showed that for a variety of different types of manual therapy and a variety of different parameters. So that we were therefore able to argue that, you know what, in my early training, it was a very biomechanical model that the reason this helped was because I moved a tissue or mm. I changed a position. And there was some fantastic work done in the 80s and 90s that said, well, yeah, you're moving it, but you're not permanently moving it. It's not actually moving the way you think it was moving. You're moving something else. And so we were able to compile a bunch of information that suggested that the way that manual therapy was probably working was at least in part through neurophysiological responses to the intervention. Mm -hmm. And we were collaborating with some clinical psychologists who encouraged at least some of our group to say, well, you're not, you haven't even thought about what people think mm -hmm. and how that might influence it. And that opened another avenue to really think about how our manual therapy interventions were generating changes in pain in particular. Now, once again, we were not the first people ever to have suggested this, but um, Joel Bialowski, mm -hmm. if you've ever uh, run into Joel, his one of his dissertation papers, kind of, I think, was the first literature some of this. Someone's, Maybe, yeah. Yeah, someone's going to respond <laughs> right. to this and say, hey, Bishop, that was, that's incorrect. But it, it, was, it was a paper that must have just hit the, at the right moment when people were ready because mm -hmm. people had written about this before. Joel kind of put it all together in a model to say, you know what, this is probably how it works and here's, here's ways we can test how it works. Here's, here's what would happen, mm -hmm. which I think was a little bit different. And so we've you know, that was a pretty important moment, and there's probably some people in manual therapy who are really annoyed at the University of Florida, but we had a, cons we had a consistent period where we've been really able to kind of promote this idea that it's not just the biomechanics, it's the neurophysiology. Joel's published a couple of other updates to the model, um, and then we've spent some time thinking about particularly expectations that the patient has and how those interact with the expectations that the provider has mm -hmm. and how that can really maximize the outcome of a conservative intervention for pain. So this was a long way of, of kind of coming back to how my clinical background informed at least this this part of the research, it was directly related to stuff that we were doing clinically to say, well, let's see if we can work out how this is happening or why this is happening. And we were very fortunate to be able to be in a place where that could happen. It's, you know, as you're telling that story, it, it strikes me, um, whether it's with uh, Bialowski or George, there are parallels between science and music, you know, where it, you may not be the first one to do it, but when you did it, you did it at the right time and the right people were paying attention, you know, in music and, and in science, you know, you, you may be published in the right journal that got the, you know, the right, you know, the right people cited it and it, it blew up. Um, and it, 
at, at one point, I think that's you know really for for a, an early stage investigator like myself, it's encouraging, but also discouraging that you could get that out there and then <laughs> gets lost in the shuffle and, and and nobody really latches onto it and, and furthers that work. But nonetheless, um, so how does that play into then you know the biopsychosocial model that that so many of us in in pain research rely upon to to explain some of these effects where where in 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 the development of the biopsychosocial model did that come in and and were you aware i mean what did you know did that kind of help you to say well these are some of the things that could be contributing then to these effects as opposed to just the manual therapy yeah i, I would i'd say that's a pretty accurate sort of statement as a pt particularly in the u.s we frame just about everything in the ICF model from the World Health Organization and use part of the biopsychosocial um, framework. Mm -hmm. And it, certainly for this manual therapy, it, it wasn't part of our initial thing. We were just observing what happened in the nervous system when we, I mean, it was pretty primitive. I'm going to push on this and see what happens. <laughs> and so we pushed on that and saw what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but then... Particularly, so uh, Steve George um, worked a lot with Mike Robinson. Mm -hmm. um, and so Steve George is PT, Mike's a clinical psychologist and uh, clinical health psychologist. And, and so they had some really good collaborations going, thinking about, you know, what is the interaction between the physical and the cognitive, affective, so the psychological, and then... You know, we've also kind of added some of the social, I would say, in part of environmental context. So the environmental factors influencing a health condition and your, your recovery from that condition, social support and some other things like that. So, you know, I, I'd say it all, all fits in there pretty nicely. Yeah. So let, let's focus in on, on low back pain for just a moment sure. because a lot of people have a problem with this. And, and I was just having a conversation with a family member recently um, who's still struggling to, to alleviate the pain she experiences and has experienced for some time with her low back pain. Um, what are some of the, the more salient ways that you've you found you can augment therapies or specific therapies that that alleviate or at least help to manage low back pain things that that maybe at one point were a little bit outside the box but because of this research you've been able to to kind of reintegrate some of the things that you've studied back into uh, the practice itself that that may even if it's just to enhance uh, you know modalities that already existed are there some things that, that stand out in your mind Well, so if I go back to the start of, of this particular story, one of the things there was, uh, there's lots of different ways to classify someone's sort of uh, why they're having back pain. Mm -hmm. um, and in one of those ways, there's a um, particular set of characteristics that suggest someone is going to respond well or have a good prognosis, however you want to frame it, mm -hmm. after they receive a spinal manipulation. And that's what kind of got us started, say, why does this work so well for these people? Let's check it out. And so there's certainly ways to look at that. And for us, you know, we get five PTs, five chiropractors, you've got 10 different philosophies. However, once you start going through and looking at the, the commonalities across everyone's slightly different philosophy, that you know, there's, there's characteristics that suggest someone should do well with manipulation. There's characteristics that say, okay, these people tend to do better with exercise that helps control the spine, mm -hmm. and so on. And so, you know, my recommendation is go and see a good physio who has worked in the area for a while and say, let's see if we can can take this picture and say what sort of 
class or category of group of exercises are going to be beneficial for you if you have acute pain. Yeah. And um, the challenge with people who've had pain for a long time, as you know, is that is there are a little bit more difficulty in getting that to resolve. Chances of complete resolution are not as good. And yeah. so you're, you're beginning to face some other sort of, of things. But there's some, let's say, fair. I was going to say weak, but that's not going to be very encouraging. There's going to be some... Y'all are out of luck, sorry. Yeah, there's going to be some interventions that actually have better effects if you do the intervention than not doing the intervention. Mm -hmm. It's just not a great big effect. Yeah. And the good news is, is that when you start putting interventions head to head, the effects are all better than doing nothing, but mm -hmm. that it's really tough to say this is the best and this is the best. So I, lots of recommendations for how to put those things together. But mm -hmm. I know that doesn't answer your specific question, but I would start by going to see a good physio. Yeah, but that's good. Somebody who is up to date is aware of, of how these different interventions are, um, I guess, received by different populations and see which of those populations mm -hmm. best fit you. How do you rectify... Um, Within the field, of course. Now, this is you know not as as a PT, but in in education and whatnot. You mentioned earlier on our healthcare system, and there are limitations on how how much money and how much time um, you can spend in therapy before the the time and, and money runs out. And so, uh, you know, and, and this is not specific to, to low back pain, but but just to to the discipline in general. Um, for, for people who require more time or, or long-term intervention, specifically in chronic pain populations, where that may not alleviate all of their pain, but helps them to manage the pain to a point where they can remain functional, how do you rectify that finite amount of therapy that they can get with how much they actually need under our current healthcare system? All right, that's a big one right there that correct question i mean when you sit in when you sit in the big chair when you <laughs> when you when you have to, when you put that director title in front of your name you get those big questions also though yeah so this is uh certainly a conundrum that has to be balanced because let's say you're in pt school and i we've spent two years talking about this is the best intervention for this condition but no one's going to pay for it mm. I mean, that's a, that's could be considered a pretty serious ethical dilemma that I now have to offer you a treatment that is not the best. Mm -hmm. fortunately, that, fortunately, that's not the case for everything, but it's definitely part of the problem for some things. That if I have a chronic condition, I've had a stroke or a spinal cord injury, I have a chronic pain condition, that I, I need a lot of treatment. Mm -hmm. And as you say, the system is not always set up to support that. And so, you know, that's why I think you would you see in a lot of U.S. sort of uh, health systems that they'll call them a step-down unit. And maybe you and I work together. So you know what? We're going to spread this out. We're going to work together for two weeks, and then you're going to do this by yourself. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of that negotiation that, that happens that may not happen in, say, the Netherlands or Australia, whose health system is very different. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, a, it is a constant weighing of, of that because if I don't get paid for providing care, I can't provide any more care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I have to make those sort of decisions about where I'm going to charge how that's going to look and some people may not accept certain types of insurance i don't know mm -hmm. if that's ever happened to you but you know say well you know the reimbursement isn't quite enough for us to cover the cost of mm -hmm. having you come now i have the great good fortune of working at a pro bono clinic once a month and so i i don't face that but it is something that is is problematic, certainly in our profession. I think probably in other professions, and there's lots of advocacy efforts that are going on to mm -hmm. try and keep the therapy cap consistent, and not be cut, and 
working with insurance companies to come up with different sort of ways and payment plans? Well, I think I think most people who have who've had any kind of exposure to physical therapy understand that when it comes to exercises, when it comes to things that, that can be done, you can inform them of those things and, and help them through them and train them how to do them. And then they can be done on their own by the patient at home or, or wherever, uh, where it doesn't draw on their insurance and whatnot. It, is there a part of the curriculum um, that's devoted to ways to deliver that? Because obviously one of the, the big things is, is is you can't control. We see that this is mirrored in, in research as, as well as in, in a clinical setting. You can't control what the person does when they're away from you. You barely control what they're doing when they're with you. Um, so are, are, there, are there aspects of, of the, the doctorate level education of PT that are devoted to, this is how we present these things to increase the likelihood that you're actually going to do them when you're on mm -hmm. your own? So the way I interpret the question, make sure I got it right, is do, is there specific content that trains me to be better at convincing you to participate in my treatment? Is that Precisely, is that right? because people are not going to be, get better. I mean, obviously you can, you, you, you can develop, uh, you know, as a researcher, you can develop ways that, that, uh, that interventions will help people alleviate their pain, restore their function. There are ways that, that you can develop the application of those to get the best result. Um, you can even develop exercises that can be done without any of the, the, the fancy things in a PT clinic that people can do on their own. But it seems like the, the stopgap is getting people to actually adhere to them. Um, so <laughs> how do you do that, I guess, is my question. Well, I would say if you're an aspiring PT student, you would have taken some course content that's related, not the complete process of motivational interviewing, but you would have been exposed to behavior change and some of those type of techniques in your, I'm going to call them clinically focused courses or clinically applicable courses part of how am I going to develop a home exercise program, how am I going to teach that, how am I going to check on that. So they receive that type of um, instruction mm -hmm. for sure. Okay. Um, there's some other content where they will hear about the behavior change again related to pain in particular. Joel does some stuff on that I think. And then when they're working at the pro bono clinic and on their clinical experiences, mm -hmm. so that's a, where a rubber hits the road spot, that they're at a clinical experience working with um, patients and a clinical mentor who is helping them navigate some of these things. Now, there is probably enough variability that I could say not every person will work with a clinical instructor who is going to say, here's the magic for getting someone to <laughs> accurately demonstrate what you showed when they come back next week. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly talked about. And then it's also, um, you know, saying this is going to be up. This is a hard one. I wish I could remember who said it, but uh, if you're with me for an hour, three times a week, it's something like two to five percent of the available time that you have. So it's way more important what you do when you're not here than what you do when you are here. So we spent a lot of time talking about low back pain, but because of your background, you have collaborated with a number of researchers uh, on a lot of different types of studies. Um, if, if, if you go down your CV, there's, there's work funded by the Medical Marijuana Consortium. There's, there are practices that, that, uh, you know, that, that you've investigated uh, as replacement for you know, non-pharmacological you know, to get away from opioid, as you mentioned. Um, you've, you've had a chance to, to work with a lot of different people on a lot of different projects, uh, not just the, the ones that you've mm -hmm. led yourself. What are some of the more exciting ones? What are the, what are the ones that... Uh, that if, if there was anything that could, that could tempt you into to devoting more time to research, that, what are the ones that have, that have maybe, I guess, generated the biggest questions uh, or the most excitement from you? I'll tell you about two okay. that I'm very fortunate to have going on right now, and I'm like 
genuinely interested. That's terrible to say. It makes me think I'm not genuinely <laughs> All the times that you really... Yeah. So, but I, I'm excited to say, you know, and I can't wait to find out what this is. Mm-hmm. So in one of them, this is a, co- a collaboration with Mike Robinson's group again. But, you know, th- philosophically, if, if we think that your pain neurophysiology... There's the physiology. If it's a physiological system like other systems, you can probably train it. Mm-hmm. And if I think about the last 30 years, I have probably accidentally exposed people to pain quite a bit. I, you know, I, It hasn't been my deliberate intent mm-hmm. to make you worse, but there have been times where I have made you worse. And so if I, if I think about the pain system... Or actually, if I think about the cardiovascular system, I mean, how do I improve that? Mm-hmm. Exercise. Right? I, yeah. I expose it, work. I yeah. stress it, mm-hmm. and then I recover. Sure. Express it and recover. And same with other physiological systems. So if pain's a physiological system, I potentially should be stressing it and letting it recover. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I have focused on is reducing your pain experience. Mm-hmm. You know, if that makes sense, so yeah. I'm not stressing it. In fact, I'm going to try very hard not to stress it, and and so we have doing some work. So, right are you now. turning your pain system into a couch potato, essentially? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Now, I think an important component of that, obviously, at least in the exercise paradigm, cardiovascular system or musculoskeletal system, whatever, um, and, and you're intimately aware of this as a PT is, is the stress has to be within a certain bandwidth so that it's not something that causes injury, but that, that prompts adaptation. So is that, is that what he's looking at with, uh, yeah, so, or know, they, I should say, I'm sure he's not working with this idea where we can, um, expose you to some clinically relevant stimulus that makes you pause, but then resolves mm-hmm. and then later on expose it again and then resolves and like i said i probably have accidentally done this to people i haven't deliberately done it Mm -hmm. to people Mm -hmm. um but so you know i'm really excited to see how how that happens and intuitively when i have talked about this before intuitively many people can kind of see yeah it's it's like training your pain tolerance or you you is what people will say or you know, if you work out regularly or you work regularly, you're going to experience something that's painful, but it's not threatening. And you say, oh, yeah, that hurts, but it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there's elements of that and there's a couple of other neurocognitive uh, things. That that's some of the best research, it seems, to, at least from my perspective, is in the areas that, that we seem to have danced around. Because what you're talking about also seems to be, in, in a way, central to pain catastrophizing, right? That people, people who catastrophize over, over the pain that they're experiencing, you know, the ones that think it's worse than it is or that it's not going to get better, may be those who haven't been in a situation where their pain has resolved. So that idea of inducing pain or exposing a, a person to pain, but then allowing it to resolve, you know, a lot of, and, and this is a, a broad, very non-scientific comment to make, but a lot of the times that we have the greatest fears or the greatest aversions to something is when we don't have the experience of what's on the other side. And so, you know, I'm sure that if you, if you take a, a, an athlete like a hockey player, for example, who's had teeth knocked out or broken bones or had to get stitched up in the sin bin or whatever, you know, they're probably less aversive to, to that level of pain or that level of risk, even physically. Uh, knowing that they'll recover from it, and yeah, it hurts, but it doesn't hurt forever, and it gets better, and you know, uh, maybe it really wasn't so bad. And so, to look at at pain research from and maybe pain conditioning from that aspect, I think is really intriguing. Yeah, I, I yeah. think that that aligns pretty nicely. That that I can have the experience, live, mm-hmm. then have the experience again, and then be able to say, you know what. I will be okay, or this will be okay, or I will recover. And I'm not quite smart enough to know the separation between what is going to be physiology-specific um, changes, but I, I certainly the, 
the way I cognitively and effectively interact with the stimulus is going to be part of that. Mm-hmm. So that's a very okay, interesting. What's, what's the second? So, <laughs> brand new area for me. This is a collaboration with Marilella Partu, who's okay. a PT. Um, and she is asking the question about so, if you have gender affirmation surgery, Mm-hmm. because your physical body doesn't match your identity. Mm-hmm. You know, you're having musculoskeletal surgery. Mm-hmm. People are having pelvic floor surgeries, mastectomies, um, facial surgeries. These are, these are extensive surgeries, which in cis people are associated with uh, sometimes disability, but certainly pain. People receive rehabilitation for some of these um, conditions post-surgically. Not all, but some. And Meryl was wondering, so you know, why do I not see more people who have had gender affirmation surgery who have pelvic pain or um, shoulder pain after mastectomy and, and these type of things. And so... Uh, she has started looking and with getting through a scoping review that mostly shows that what's reported is surgical, perioperative, and immediately postoperative, some longer-term stuff, but very, very rarely have we come across papers that are focused on musculoskeletal dysfunction with more recent ones have had incontinence and pelvic floor trouble and prolapse and things. So... It's starting to be more commonly reported in the literature, and she's begun interviewing people who have gone through mm-hmm. a transition surgery or part of a transition surgery to kind of find out more about their experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever done qualitative research before. I've done one one study in the past and thought, holy cow, I don't know if I want to do that again because it was a lot of work all you qualitative yeah. <laughs> researchers out there if i ever said anything mean in the past i take it all back because going through the transcripts of even just a couple of interviews that we have and coding and mm-hmm. theming uh, coming up with the themes is pretty we, intense we just talked about that and i you know i apologize because it slips me as as far as which episode you know who i had on but we're talking about that and and for everybody that's that's you know maybe uh, wondering Quantitative research, you have numbers, and numbers work well into Big statistical models, and you can, you can, and compare differences. In qualitative research, you have sometimes paragraphs of answers, um, and you can try to, in some ways, direct those answers in the way that you ask questions. But it's just not easy to to delineate lines, to make comparisons between groups and to really analyze those data. Uh, it's it's a lot uh, a lot fuzzier than numbers. And so I can see why that would be a huge headache. We were just speaking of that in, in a prior episode. Um, but that's really exciting stuff. And I would imagine it's got to be really difficult to recruit for that type of study. One, one thing that people don't realize is that that, yeah, it's, it's great to conduct this research, but you have to have people who are willing to come forward and be a part of your study. Um, and I, I think in, in that specific population, um, because it's not always well received, are, are, you, are you finding that it's, it's harder to get people or are they more no, willing it, to? No, it's, it's been a fairly, fairly steady enrollment. That's fantastic. Yeah, Good. Fairly steady Good. enrollment. So, so that's super exciting. I'm really looking forward to getting a bit more information about um, that. And then next, the exciting next step, saying, okay, well, if this is the case, these are some things we can do and all that kind of imagination part. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to chuck a third one in there, talking to uh, a colleague of mine who's at Duke, mm-hmm. actually Chad Cook, who does manual therapy research mm-hmm. and, and, you know, playing around with a few ideas of, of uh, what, interventions might look like and some of those type of things in going back to a bit more of a clinic oriented mm-hmm. uh, trial. Excellent. Okay. Well, we don't have very much time left. I can't keep you all day. 
but I I am interested. Um, you know, over the past couple of years, we've hinted at this, and and uh, people will, will have heard in the introduction um, your roles and 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 what you do now. But now in an administrative capacity, um, you are in a unique position to to direct an already appealing program, uh, or at least a, an aspect of that program. Um, you know, UFPT is, is, is pretty well renowned, and there are a lot of aspects of, of the program here that, that draw people from around the country, and I would imagine around the world as well. Um, what, are, what are some of the finer points of, of UFPT that really make this a unique place to um, answer phone calls and, and whatnot? <laughs> to make this a uh, a unique place to to get that training, um, so that's one. What makes you what makes UFPT such such a great place? Because I think we both would agree that it is. And two, what are some of the ways that you want to expand UFPT and, and and make it even better in in the coming years? And I know that you're coming um, out of a, a position where. You've you've spent at least the the freshman component of of this new role under COVID, so that's <laughs> yeah. got to you know created some problems. But yeah, so uh, my role is I am the director of the professional PT education program. So the program that awards the DPT, mm-hmm. we're in a department of physical therapy that also has uh, graduate faculty, graduate students doing PhD work. Uh, some training grants and stuff like that. And I'd say, at broadly at the department level, why am I still here 25 years later or whatever it is, is because quite literally there are people with whom I work that are inventing what I will do as a PT in five or, five or six years. You know, viral therapies, and genetic therapies, and all these type of things. I mean... Uh, and I tell out the PT students when they come in, say, I don't know what to do if someone gets an injection of some type of genetic therapy that's going to be delivered. I don't know what to do to help that person. But the fantastic news is we have other faculty in the department who are working on what you do about that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that just blows my yeah. mind sometimes <laughs> to say, you know what, a, a bit of a primitive brain over here I'm clunking along <laughs> doing my thing and right over there are people who are who are working out what we'll be doing in five or six years which is crazy that's fascinating so that I have always loved about being here um, and then we have a, a group of faculty in the PT education so back to this doctor of faculty uh, doctor of physical therapy program the faculty and staff in there the the faculty the about half a bit more than half i think all have physical therapy degrees um we have some people who have been practicing more recently than i have so you know that's good and we have some collaborators from the community who are practicing now so i think there's this nice mix of the spectrum of clinical experience that that is good. Um, COVID was an interesting time to kind of say, hey, we'll do all these great things. We're going to do awesome things. Oh, but the university is closed. (laughs) And so, you know, dealing with that has been good. But we're getting ready now to start a planning process and, and say, you know, it looks like it's been a pretty sloggy two years and people are tired and but we're going to try and have a planning thing and say where will we be in the next three years and uh there's just my opinion it'd be Mm -hmm. interesting this is interesting (laughs) timing because we'll have our strategic planning uh in at the end of february start of march but you know i we can embrace being a traditional program. What traditional? I mean, we're a university-based program. We're on-site. We 
you know, we're not hybrid flex. You live in Wisconsin and fly down once a month to do labs. You mm-hmm. come and live in Gainesville. So residential, I think. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. Um, and we have people who care passionately about physical therapy as a profession, who are physical therapists. And we have some incredible collaborators uh, in the PT education who are faculty of the department who are making tomorrow's rehabilitation interventions today and I, th- I think everyone cares very deeply about students succeeding we just all have a little bit of a different mm. opinion about how to get there <laughs> right right and so I'm, I'm excited because I think if we uh, we come together everyone is so intense about everyone being successful that I think that's can only be good yeah as long as we all get going in the same direction, it's going to be great. Just as long as the answer to where will we be in three years is not, well, we'll still be doing this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, keep, we keep talking about when things, you know, our reemergence from post-COVID. So no, I, here's my, fingers crossed. That... My mindset, the way I think about it, is that in 1989, when I was working in a hospital, I did not wash my hands between patients. Mm. I would wash my hands if they were visibly soiled. Mm-hmm. If I changed bedding that was visibly so, but I didn't routinely do it. I did it mostly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, HIV mm-hmm. and then MRSA mm-hmm. and a couple of other health conditions changed the way I had to practice. I, I really think that, that what COVID might end up is, is that I will always practice with a mask. That as well as washing my hands, putting on gloves, I'll put on a mask. Maybe, maybe that's the end result. Mm-hmm. And well, that's been two years. I'm quite used to going to whatever health provider, and they've had masks on for a while. I, I just think mm-hmm. it's going to be like that. The hard part is this social interaction and how we, you know, stay human. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, how we keep mm-hmm. the humanity in us going, but from a healthcare and a healthcare education, I, th- I think we may as well just embrace. Might just be a next step in the evolution yep. of good practice. Absolutely. I have one more thing before we close. Um, this is uh, you know relatively unprofessional. I don't mean for it to be superficial, but I'm certain that my Aunt Mickey has been hanging on every <laughs> single word. So if you would just say a hello to Marquita, I'm sure she would really appreciate that, since I love my aunt so much. Mm-hmm. G'day, Marquita. How are you? Mark Bishop here. Perfect. And with that, thank you so much for taking some time. I know you're very busy, uh, but I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, me too. Thanks for the invite, Mark. It's good. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter and Price of Pain podcast, all one word on Instagram.